Okay, if we can have your attention, here's a... Uh, I'm gonna, I was given the rules about eating. I'm going to get them wrong, but what the heck. Um, Martha's going to prop open those doors to the left. That would be the hint, Martha. See how good that was? Do they stay open? They don't stay open by themselves. Um, and if you will head this way, according to what I was told, make a right turn, and the food is um, being served at that far thing over there somewhere. So just follow along and come back, and there's water and whatnot over there. Do not go out the door. Leah is going to guard this door right there so none of you can get out. Not that Leah, the other Leah. The Leah that they're scared of. Um, and if, uh, where's Barbara? Barbara, if you will ask a uh, blessing of this food, then we can begin serving and eating and get underway because I've already been threatened kickoff is 7.20. At Tony Vinson, um, who hangs out over there. And then there is this, this confusing thing called annual conference. And it's confusing because we use the term annual conference in two different ways. We use annual conference as meaning a geographic area led by a bishop. The Texas conference covers approximately the eastern third of the state of Texas, which means from Texarkana all the way down to um, College Station on the west, from the Louisiana border on the, on the east, and all the way down to the Gulf. So it's a, it's a large geographic area. The bishop works in concerts with the district superintendents and several others, and that is called the cabinet. So when, when um, Marty and Jill came here, you might have noticed, and I don't even know if this is true, Jill may have joined the church, but Marty's membership is not in the local church. It is in the annual conference because the clergy are all under the leadership of the bishop and the district superintendents. So the second way we use the term annual conference is the meeting that happens every year. And I know, I know that Denise has served as a delegate. Have any of the rest of you served as delegates to annual conference? So you guys have a pretty good understanding of what happens at annual conference. It's a, it happens, you know, to the disgust and dismay of many lay people. It happens over Memorial Day weekend every year, just when you wanted to use your one day off of work to do a church meeting. Um, but the clergy really like that, and so there you go. Um, and it's, it's about a three-and-a-half-day meeting. There's fabulous worship, and then there's the business of the annual conference. So then each annual conference is a member of a jurisdiction, which, again, is a geographic area. We belong to the South Central jurisdiction, which is made up of five Texas conferences, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Missouri, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Now, one of the key points that you need to keep in mind is that the term jurisdictional conference only applies to the United States. Outside of the United States, they're referred to as central conferences. Once every four years, the entire United Methodist Church meets at a meeting called General Conference. And if you've been a, a delegate to annual conference, you may have been there in a year when the delegates to General Conference have been chosen. We, there's a formula, which is also very confusing, but there's a formula according to um, membership and several other um, alternative items that, that tells every annual conference how many delegates to general conference they can have. And we have an equal number of clergy delegates and lay delegates. Clergy delegates are elected by clergy. Lay delegates are elected by laity. And then we have the same number of delegates who are elected to jurisdictional conference. 
And then, so you end up at jurisdictional conference with twice as many delegates, clergy and laity. Um, the, really, the only real business that happens at jurisdictional conference is the election of bishops to fill vacated spots by a retiring bishop. And so once the bishops are elected, then the jurisdictional episcopacy committee decides which bishop is going to go to which annual conference. Is that about as clear as mud? Are we on the same page? So general conference, um, so uh, my husband and I met in law school. We're both lawyers. Um, I don't practice law anymore, but he does. And um, you may all be familiar, I didn't bring mine with me, but you may have seen the Book of Discipline, which we are all of the rules that we operate under. Are there any other lawyers here? No? Okay, well, the Book of Discipline looks an awful lot like what in Texas we call Black's Statutes. It's called that because it's a black book. But it is the laws and the rules that we go by in Texas. So it's very comparable. The thing that's not comparable is when you get to general conference, there are roughly between 900 and 1,000 people, very few of whom have any, any experience writing legislation. And so you have all of these people who don't know what they're doing writing legislation, and then it passes, and over the next four years, people ponder, what does this mean? Because the people who wrote it had an idea of what they wanted it to say, but maybe it says it and maybe it doesn't. Um, in 1972, language was inserted into the Book of Discipline which says homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. You're all familiar with that? It was a, it was a statement. Someday I'm going to get this story straight. But it was, um, it was a statement made off the cuff by an individual who was a delegate on the floor of general conference. I don't know what the issue was that they were talking about. I need to get that straight. And it was adopted. It was just, they voted on it and it was adopted. There was no forethought that went into what this would mean for the denomination. So since 1972, that language has been in the Book of Discipline. And since then, more and more things which speak to homosexuality and human sexuality, including churches not being able to host same-sex weddings and clergy not being allowed to perform them, just more and more division within the United Methodist Church about the language and the harm that it has and is doing. So in 2016 at General Conference in Portland, there were all these rumors going around that there was a group meeting outside of the meetings of General Conference and that that group was going to work this out. Now it's my understanding that it was, and I know you'll be amazed to hear this, it was 10 white clergymen working with one or two bishops and they were going to work this whole thing out. And they were going to fix it and they were going to bring it to the general conference and Glenda the Good Witch was going to come in her bubble and everything was going to be okay. Well, that didn't happen. Um, and so when that exploded, something happened that has apparently never happened at a general conference before and that is someone stood up and went to the microphone on the floor of General Conference and said, we need our bishops to lead. We are at a standstill, and we need our bishops to lead. And at that point, a group of bishops, which was selected by the Council of Bishops, which is made up of all bishops, active and retired, there was a small group of bishops that got up and left the room. And they went off to figure out what they were going to do. And so, um, that they didn't have it 
They had no plan when we left General Conference. And then fast forward a little bit to our 2016 jurisdictional conference, which was in July of 2016. We were meeting in Wichita. And um, during our jurisdictional conference, in which what we needed to do was to elect three bishops, because we had three retiring bishops, um, and that was all we thought we had to do. But the Western jurisdiction, which is Oregon, um, California, uh, Washington, I don't know what other states are there, but during our jurisdictional conference, the Western jurisdiction elected and consecrated an openly gay, married, lesbian clergywoman. Um, well, of course, you could, you could interpret what they did in a number of different ways. Um, many people thought it was a slap across the face to the rest of the United Methodist Church. Many people thought it was going to make the church deal with this issue that we've been going around and around with for so many years. Um, uh, and so members of our jurisdiction stood on the floor and um, asked for a ruling of the, judici the judicial council about the legality of having done that. So that also went into this pot that this group of bishops was working with on how to find a way forward. So in response from the general conference in 2016 um, and the election of this woman to be a bishop in the Western jurisdiction, the Council of Bishops put together a group of 32 people, um, a mix of lay clergy, men and women, uh, U.S. and outside of U.S., and as much as possible, look around this room, as much as possible, a mixture of ages. Um, and you, uh, that, that's a hard thing to do because um, we don't have that many young people joining the United Methodist Church. And if you do have young people, they aren't the kind of people who can give the kind of time they were asking us to give. So, um, it, if you don't remember anything else that I say this evening, this, this next bit is really important, so I really want you to take this in. The Council of Bishops called this group of people together from all over the United Methodist Church world, and they gave us a charge to design a plan that would do three things. First, to maximize the presence of the United Methodist Witness in as many places in the world as possible. Second, to allow for as much contextual differentiation as possible. And third, to balance an approach to different theological understandings of human sexuality with a desire for as much unity as possible. Now that's a lot of words, but that was the charge, those three specific things that we were asked to do. So I want to give you just a little bit more information about who these people were. There, like I said, there were 32 of us. Um, well, it's not there. Anyway. Um, we began our work together in January of 2017 and in between January of 2017 of bishops. Um, after the Council of Bishops reviewed that work, they came back to us and told us to further develop two of the sketches that we had, and those became the beginning places of what are now known as the One Church Plan and the Connectional Conferences Plan. 
When the commission met the fourth week in March, we spent almost all of our three days together um, perfecting those two plans. Then the Council of Bishops met in early May, and at the close of their meeting, a press release was issued, and it said several key things. First and foremost, it said that a large majority of the bishops wanted to see, uh, a large majority of the bishops favored and recommended the one church plan. Second, a small group of the bishops wanted to see all three plans go to general conference. And finally, the council agreed to send all three plans to the general conference as a historical narrative of the work that had been done by the commission. Um, so, then we had our final meeting in May of, May 14th through 17th, and at that time, we were asked by the Council of Bishops to flesh out all three plans. We took a vote, and a majority of the commission members felt that we could not in good conscience submit a traditional list plan because we had done no work for an entire year on that plan. It was part, it was one of the initial sketches, and then we had been told, don't work on that, and all of a sudden, here we are at the 11th hour being asked to write a whole plan. And we said that for months, all of our attention and work had gone into the other two plans. We had prayed about it, we had agonized over the language, we had horse-traded, we had, um, and so we felt that we could not in good conscience submit a traditionalist plan. Um, so the, the important thing that you need to understand from this is that the traditionalist plan which you are now seeing and which you are hearing a lot about from our bishop and from other members of our delegation, it is largely the work of one member of the commission and other people who were not on the commission and who we do not know who they are. On July 31st of this year, the Council of Bishops released the full text of all three plans in the four official languages of the United Methodist Church. You may have al already read it, if not, it's 93 pages long. You can go to the website and you can find it and you can read it um, in English or unless you speak Kiswahili or Portuguese, maybe you want to read it in those languages. Um, I'm not going to read all of it to you. Um, I'm just going to give you an overview of each plan. And I'm going to start with the one church plan. Now, I'm only one member of the commission, and I have my own personal views, and because y'all have invited me here tonight, you're going to hear my personal views. So, um, my belief is that the One Church Plan does precisely what the Council of Bishops asks us to do. The One Church Plan is supported by a majority of the commission, as well as a majority of the bishops. And this plan is truly, truly the only one which fulfills the mission, the three-point mission given to us by the commission. The One Church Plan is born out of a deep belief in God's plan to make room for all people. It is about maximizing the United Methodist witness around the world, and it's about unity while allowing for differences. So here are some of the key features. The One Church Plan removes all of the language from the Book of Discipline, which prohibits pastors and churches from conducting and hosting same-sex weddings. It removes all language from the Book of Dis Discipline, which keeps 
annual conferences from ordaining self-avowed practicing homosexuals. It adds language that specifically protects clergy and churches which choose not to perform and host same-sex marriages. It adds language that specifically protects boards of ordained ministry and bishops who choose not to ordain self-avowed practicing homosexuals. It ends the threats of church trials over same-sex weddings. It allows our general boards and agencies, as well as our institutions and foundations and universities, to operate without disruption. It keeps in place West Paths, which your clergy know is the Clergy Pension Organization. Um, now, you may have heard that the One Church Plan is the local option plan by a different name. This is not the local option plan because no local church has to vote on anything unless and until they choose to. So, for instance, if, Mission, uh, if Missouri City United Methodist Church chooses not to change their rules and therefore not to host same-sex marriages in the, in the uh, facilities here, your pastors would have the ability to perform same-sex marriages in different venues. So therefore, no vote has to take, um, take place. Pastors who wish to conduct those weddings, whose churches don't allow it, are free to do so at different venues, and no pastor is forced to do those weddings. No annual conference has to vote on this plan, and there are no constitutional amendments needed for passage of the One Church Plan. I'm going to move on to the Connectional Conferences Plan. It's the most complicated to understand and implement, and it appears to be the plan with the least support. While it may allow for contextual differences, the type of unity it provides is mostly that of shared services, not of theology or doctrine. So there are five U.S. jurisdictions which would be replaced by three connectional conferences each covering the entire country based on theology, and they are described in this plan as progressive, unity, and traditional. The thought being that every church would choose one of these connectional conferences to join. All connectional conferences would continue to support and sustain, which we all know means pay for, um, ministry in areas outside of the United States. General Conference would be sh shortened and would have authority only over shared doctrine and services. There would be very little legislation considered, and it would be a time of connecting worship and shared best practices. Some general agencies would continue. West Path, our clergy retirement plans, would be um, would continue, and there are a few others, but the rest of the general boards and agencies would remain paid for only by the connectional conferences which choose to utilize their services. The Council of Bishops would continue, but it would become a place of ecumenical relations and collegial learning opportunities. So it would be a completely different body than the Council of Bishops we're familiar with now. Each connectional conference would elect and pay for their own bishops. Bishops outside the United States would continue to be financially supported by all of the U.S. annual conferences. Each connectional conference would create its own book of discipline with some portions held in common by all three. The Judicial Council would remain as the supreme judicial body. There would be two members from each 
International Conference, and they would rule according to the book of discipline that rules that connectional conference. The central conferences, which are all of those conferences located outside of the United States, would have the choice of becoming their own connectional conference or joining one of the U.S. central conferences. Each connectional conference would have their own policies on LGBTQ weddings and ordination. Implementation would begin at the jurisdictional conference level regarding connectional conference affiliation. Now this is a little bit complex, but just think about this with me. If our annual conference disagreed with the decision made by our jurisdictional conference, we could affiliate with a different central connectional conference. No local church would have to vote unless the local church wants to affiliate with a connectional conference other than that which the annual conference and jurisdictional conference elect to join. There are nine constitutional amendments necessary to pass and adopt the Connectional Conference Plan. It's very complex. So let's move to the Traditionalist Plan, um, the primary focus of which is broad accountability to the language of the discipline. The um, first thing that would happen is it would broaden the definition of self-avowed practicing homosexuals to include persons living in a same-sex marriage or civil union or persons who publicly state that they are practicing homosexuals. It would mandate that any resolution would include a commitment to not repeat the offense. So, if a pastor does marry a same-sex couple and is brought up on charges, then any resolution of those charges would have to include a commitment on that pastor's part not to commit that same offense again. It would require that every annual conference certify that it will uphold, enforce, and maintain the Book of, Dis Book of Discipline standards which prohibit LGBTQ marriage and ordination. So every pastor would have to take an oath that they would not marry same-sex couples, and every person on the board of ordained ministry would have to take an oath that they would not be part of ordaining a homosexual individual. Annual conferences who will not agree to certify those things would be encouraged to leave the denomination. All bishops, retired and active, will be required to certify that they will uphold, enforce, and maintain the Book of Discipline standards on LGBTQ marriages and ordinations, and active bishops who won't agree to that certification would no longer be eligible to receive compensation for expenses as of 2021, and they would be encouraged to leave the denomination. Local churches in non-conforming annual conferences could vote and choose to stay in the denomination. Local churches in conforming annual, con um, annual conferences that disagree could vote to withdraw from the United Methodist Church. Clergy who cannot maintain the Book of Di uh, Discipline standards on LGBT marriages and ordination would be encouraged to leave the denomination. The traditional pl list plan would make no changes to general boards and agencies. All United Methodist-related institutions would retain current relationships unless there is a change in bylaws to change their relationship there would be no change to the jurisdictional council. So you can see that the traditionalist plan is easy to understand, but it is punitive in implementation. When you try to align the tenets 
of the traditionalist plan with the three goals that I set out at the beginning of our discussion um, given to the commission by the Council of Bishops, there is, there is no match. It may make it possible for traditionalists to maximize their presence, but it is implausible to call it United Methodist Witness. There is no allowance for contextual difference and there is no unity. You could either agree to the revised Book of Discipline or you are encouraged to leave the denomination. The traditionalist plan, if passed, will force our denomination to be split over this one issue. So now my personal experience in being a part of the commission has been a time of extreme ups and downs, um, combined with tears and fears and lots of what ifs. But I have also been lifted up in, in so many ways. I can tell you I've never been away from home as much as I have doing this work. And my husband, who is not particularly saintly, has supported me both physically and mentally through what at times has felt like an incredible ordeal. My friends in the Texas Conference, even Marty, and throughout our jurisdiction and the Greater Connection have prayed me through this journey. Um, I work for Texas Methodist Foundation, and before I could accept the nomination to participate on the commission, I had to go to the president of Texas Methodist Foundation and say, this is what they want me to do. There's no way I can do this and continue doing the job that I've been doing. And his response to me was, we're very clear that you are our gift to the denomination for the next three years. Um, without, the, without my colleagues at TMF, um, who have not only lifted me up in prayer, but held my hands when I have been bereft and lacking in hope, I would not be here today. But right now, right now, at this point in the journey, I am filled with an amazing amount of hope. And this hope is built on the others who participated in the commission. They have accorded respect to every person around that table and listened to their disparate voices. My hope has grown in the relationships built with people who I never would have had the opportunity to know if I had not done this work. But first and foremost, I am living in the hope for the one church plan that it will be voted on and I believe adopted by General Conference in February. I believe in the one church plan because it gives us a generous way of living together, being in ministry with people we know and people we don't know, people who are like us and those who are nothing like us. The One Church Plan makes it clear that United Methodist Christians will not be defined by only one issue. I truly believe that the One Church Plan does create as much unity as possible while allowing as much contextual differentiation as possible. It maximizes our United Methodist witness and most importantly, it does the least harm of any of the plans offered. Now, please do not believe that I think this is a done deal, because I don't. There is a lot of work that needs to be done between now and February, and my work is about what we're doing here today, bringing you um, the story behind the work of the commission, acquainting you with the results of our journey, but you're part of this journey, too, and you've got important work to do. And it is the work of all of us to tell this story. This conversation needs to be taking place in churches, like you're doing here today. 
It needs to not be just led by a bishop who tells us what he or she wants us to know and do. We are the laity of this church, and we need to understand what is at stake. We need to let our delegates to general conference know that we are seeking to be in conversation with them so that they listen to voices and vote with those voices in their minds at general conference. We need to make it clear to them that they must be thinking beyond themselves. They need to see our faces, hear our voices, remember our stories, and consider the long-term consequences of their votes. So I want to share a really quick story, and then I'm going to stop and let you ask questions and throw water balloons or whatever it is you want to do. Um, but my husband Tom and I just got back last night from a trip to Great Britain where we, um, we were on a Wesley Heritage tour. We saw where Susanna Wesley was buried. We saw where John and Charles Wesley were born. We went to Epworth by the sea. We, but our, one of our last stops, in fact, our very last stop before we went for our last night together was in uh, a little town the name of which escapes me because they were so odd. Um, but it was, um, it was a, what had been a primitive Methodist church. Now, the primitive Methodists were a movement after the Wesleys were gone. Because after the Wesleys were gone, the, the Methodists, the Wesleyan Methodists got really complacent and they went inside their churches just like we have. And they stopped thinking about the world outside and the world outside, how the world outside needed them. And they became very insular. And so there was this group called the Primitive Methodists who, who went back to John Wesley's first sermons and went back to John Wesley's first actions in going places and preaching outside when they, when they were no longer welcome in the Anglican church, preaching outside to people who would never hear the gospel except for these men and a few women who were willing to stand on a table in front of 30,000 miners who never had the chance to go to church. And they were called primitive Methodists because... The Methodists were inside their beautiful buildings singing John, Charles Wesley's hymns. And these people caught fire. They caught the flame that the Wesley brothers had started. And then the person who was telling us about this amazing movement told us that at some point in time, and I don't remember the date, all of the Wesleyan movements in Great Britain came together and they are now the Methodist Church. They are not United Methodists. So they are, they are part of what we call the Pan-Methodist movement. But they are not represented at General Conference. They are not, they do not get to vote on this. And my husband, who is um, one of the very, very most geekish church geeks you could ever know decided as we were sitting in this tiny little primitive Methodist um, church that he was going to Google human sexuality and how the primitive United, how the British United Methodist, the British Methodist Church dealt with this. And I learned from that that the British Methodist Church solved this issue in 1993. 1993. My 28-year-old daughter was only three years old when the British Methodist Church chose to be fully inclusive. And I think there's a lesson that we could all learn from that. So I've talked and talked and talked, and I've only got like 17 minutes left for you to ask questions. Um, although I will hang out for a little while, um, you know, for those of you who have to run off to see 
the Cowboys lose to the Texans. Um, and I, I saw a hand back there. Ask anything. If, it, if I can't answer it, you can email me, and I'll try and find you an answer. What is the next step for the three plans? Are all three plans going to be presented to the general conference, or will the council bishops select one plan and recommend that? The council of bishops has recommended the one church plan, but has included the connectional conferences plan and the traditionalist plans as what they called historical narrative of the work done by the commission. There will be people who will have legislation ready to introduce at General Conference that will introduce certainly the traditionalist plan for vote. Does that help? What is the official question that the plans are supposed to answer in some form or another? The question is that those threefold um, charges. The question is, how do we go forward as the United Methodist denomination together in a way that creates as much unity as possible, has as much um, differentiation as possible, and um, maximizes the United Methodist witness? Sure, so in the one church plan, um, so you know, Martha, that no pastor has to marry anybody that they don't want to marry. Um, that's just the way it is in the United Methodist Church. If somebody comes to Marty or to Barbara and wants to get married, and for whatever reason, Marty doesn't think that this is going to last, he doesn't think that these people are in it for the long haul, whatever. He doesn't have to marry them. So, we start there. Under the one church plan, if a pastor wants to conduct a same-sex marriage, they have the authority to do that. They may or may not be able to do it in their church. If the church votes to allow that wedding to happen in the church, then they can conduct the wedding in the church. If the church does not, they have the ability to do it in a different venue. Under the traditionalist plan, no pastor would have the ability to conduct a same-sex marriage, and if a pastor conducts a same-sex marriage, they would be subject to a church trial, and if the church trial is if it's found that they violated their um, obligations to the denomination, they might be given the chance to agree not to do it again and still hold on to their orders, but they also might be stripped of their orders. Um, under the connectional church plan, each connectional, uh, the connectional conference plan, each connectional conference would have the ability to make that decision themselves. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, yeah, so um, constitutional amendments are different. And any of you who have been uh, delegates at annual conference will have seen this in action. So if there's a constitutional amendment that passes at general conference, then what happens is that constitutional amendment has to be voted on in every annual conference in the United States and every central conference 
outside of the United States. And we, you, the, the vote is held at each annual conference or each central conference. The votes are tallied. Those votes are sent to the secretary of the general conference. And the, the, connection, the uh, constitutional amendment then has to pass by a two-thirds vote of the entire voting population of the United Methodist Church. So it may be that a constitutional connection, so that's one of the reasons why you'll never hear a bishop announce whether or not a constitutional amendment passes in that annual conference, because it doesn't matter. What matters are the number of votes it gets and the number of votes against it, and then those are all aggregated. And so it takes at least a year to find out whether a uh, constitutional amendment passes. It's very complicated. Does, does that help? Yes. So I, um, the, the way, so each pastor and each church fills out a form, and especially a church, uh, the, the SPRC will fill out a form when they know that their pastor is leaving and they know that they're receiving a new pastor. They will say, you know, we need a pastor who is um, an incredible preacher. Or we need a pastor who is very pastoral, who is willing to meet one-on-one -on -one with people, who's willing to visit in the hospital. We need a pastor who is um, willing to be available to live in a parsonage close to um, the church. So there's a form that every church fills out when they're getting ready to receive a new pastor. The cabinet, part of what the cabinet does during appointment season is they read those papers that are sent to the cabinet saying what it is that that church wants to receive. And then every pastor works with their district superintendent sa and says, I don't know whether it's written down, but the, the district superintendent will have a good idea of where that pastor thinks they want to go next. So every church would have the ability to say, um, we don't want to receive an openly gay pastor. And um, chances are, that the cabinet would, would recognize and would honor that. I had the opportunity as conference lay leader to sit around the table as those decisions were made. And I want you to know, you know, some of them don't, don't work out. Sometimes the, the cabinet makes a decision and sends a pastor somewhere and they think it's gonna be great and it's just not. But the prayer and care around that table in attempting to put the right person at the right place is amazing. Um, you know, though, there are still places in the United Methodist Church where um, SPRCs will put down that they will not welcome a female pastor. Well, female pastors have been ordained in the United Methodist Church for 60 years now, and um, my opinion is that those churches need to get over it. Uh, um, and I think through time, 
that it would be the same thing. But No, 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 no. No. If, if a plan passes that allows for the ordination of um, non-heterosexual individuals, we, the, the, the clergy, the um, cabinet, the whole annual conference would have to live through that process and find a way to make it work. But part of it would be that the, that the cabinet would want to honor a church that did not want to welcome a non-heterosexual pastor under the one church plan. Right. Does that help you? Was I correct when I heard you say that the uh, language in the Book of Discipline uh, with regard to homosexuals is by accident? I, 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 um, my understanding is it was a pastor in the Central Texas Conference who there was some kind of legislation on the floor of General Conference, and I don't know what it was, but he stood up on the floor of General Conference with a microphone and said, well, why don't we just say that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching? And then he made an amendment, and, and you know, it's Robert's rule of order, and, um, and it passed, and there it was. It was never anything that was debated in a subcommittee. It was never anything that the, the churches talked about. It just happened spur of the moment and since then it has snowballed and I know um, I know that when I have insomnia the best possible thing I can do is get my book of discipline and get in bed and start reading it <laughs> but if you do a search through the book of discipline now you would be amazed at how many places the language about homosexuality has worked its way in to places where it has no, 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 no reason to be there. So, yeah, follow up. Right. Somebody over here. Where does the body of bishop and the body they would belong to view Sodom and Gomorrah? I think that uh, what you might be I, what you might be saying, let me let me let me restate that and and then you can tell me if I'm getting close to what you're referring to. Um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is in the Old Testament, and it's a story of people who um, had strayed so far from the book of, from the rules given to Moses that God gave up and just said, no more. Um, and I do not and this is just me, okay? I cannot answer for the Council of Bishops. In fact, I can't speak for any bishop. Um, I do not view those types of stories in the Old Testament as helpful for dealing with this issue in our time. I believe, I believe that Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we all have the opportunity to live in grace. And I believe a lot of the rules and regulations that were set out in the Old Testament were fulfilled by the birth, um, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
there are people who disagree with me. And maybe you do. And you're certainly entitled to. Does that address what you were getting to? One. So one of the things you need to understand about general conference is nothing's ever cast in concrete. And nothing's ever clean. And so, you know, it is entirely possible that um, theoretically the only plan that is supposed to come before general conference is the one church plan because it is the plan that was recommended and endorsed by the Council of Bishops and is endorsed by the vast, ma the, the majority of um, the Commission on the Way Forward. However, any person who is a delegate to General Conference can stand up and amend. Exactly. The, the Judicial Council ruled that other plans if they meet certain criteria, um, and they are, they have to be submitted by November or something, and I can't remember the exact criteria, it has to meet the criteria of what the general conference was called for in 2019, very specifically. I know of one other plan that has so far met that, is what I'm told. Yeah. But there's, according to our bishop, Mike, there could be as many as 200 being submitted. Now, whether they will all pass the uh, Judicial Council test, we don't know, but there will be many plans. I heard the simple plan. So, does that answer? And it's just, it, it's, it works like the Congress. Nothing is clean, nothing is easy, and uh, nothing can be simple. Right. And the other reality is nothing could happen because they have three days. That's it. So starts at one time, ends three days later. When when we had general conference in uh, 2012 in Tampa, Tampa, we spent two entire days amending and. Uh, the rules and then amending the amendments. It took two days and then at the end of the second day there was a vote taken and the vote was to accept the rules originally as they came with none of the amendments. And so basically we, we wasted two entire days of general counsel arguing about the rules. So if, if, um, if you have any questions that you want to engage with me further, Marty knows how to get a hold of me. Um, feel free to email me. Um, part of what I agreed to when I agreed to be on the commission was to make myself available to go places and talk about what the commission did and what we're recommending. And so um, part of what I agreed to do was to serve you. Um, the, on our annual conference website, there should be the names and email addresses of all of our delegates. Yeah, Mike, Mike has this. And we'll, we'll print the name of the delegates and email addresses either this week or next week in the connection. So if you want to contact your delegates, you can. And, 
And there are some listening sessions going on. I don't know. We are putting those in this week's connection. Okay. Any other questions? Miss. Thank you. Thank you. Miss Leah Taylor.